Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 652 for September 12th, 2020. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week, our guest is Bart Bouchotts back with Programming by Stealth 101. Yeah, we're starting again, Allison. 101. <laughs> that's the first that's the first course you do in university, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, this is uh yeah, we passed a big milestone and we're turning a big corner, right? We are. We're going a bit meta here, actually. So we're now learning by stealth the tools to help you program as opposed to the actual programming. Now, it's only a brief detour, but it's I think it's an important one for us to take. And I think it's one that you're quite ready for having had some experiences with your clock where you made a decision and changed your mind and wanted to back out. <laughs> and I know for a fact, a few times earlier in the series, you know, a year ago or whatever, you would have five different folders with names that sort of kind of made sense to you at the moment. Yeah. And then you look back at them, and you're like, well, one of these folders has a version I want to show you. Um, give me a moment. Well, my favorite thing is in everything that I do, I remember Excel files that would have the word final in it. And then the next one would be really final. And then I'd have one called this final time. Final. I really mean it final. <laughs> We're final going to two. try to avoid that, right? Exactly. And and I think so, I think the timing is good. I mean, maybe it could have been sooner, but it would have been a big interruption. But until yeah. you've coded for a while, I don't think you realize the problem that needs to be solved. And I don't think there's yeah. anybody listening who won't go, oh, yeah, I need that. Exactly. Yeah, that, that sort of it's hard to know when quite the right moment is. But interrupting our flow in JavaScript didn't seem like a good idea. So that's why I sort of held off. Yeah. Um, and so what we're going to be talking about is version control systems. And what the name might imply that it's a bit, you know, ooh, do I use a three dot mechanism for labeling my version numbers? And what about alphas and betas? No, it has nothing to do with any of that. What it's about is capturing the full history of your software so you are free to experiment safely hmm. and you can easily change your mind. So a lot of programming is about making decisions. And at the point in time you make the decision, you usually don't have all the facts. <laughs> so you're sitting there going, well, I know I need to do something with time zones. Um, do I use Moment.js? Do I use the native JavaScript tools? Oh, these people on the internet have a very strong opinion one way, and these people have a really strong opinion the other way. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, flip a coin. Let's go this way. And you get 10 hours in, and you go, oh, ooh, this is hard. <laughs> Maybe there's so, an easier way is usually why I change paths. Oh, yeah. I mean, my personality products this prefers economy of effort. And when I realize this is not economic at all, I'm quite happy to go back. But if you haven't been using version control, going back is difficult because then you're going to yourself, what did I change? I have opened that file and, da, 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 da. and then you leave something out and you make a whole bunch of new bugs. And all you've done is try to reverse and you've already added new bugs. And then you try to go forward in your buggy code. <laughs> There's your and, third layer of bugs. Yeah. So you now have bugs on top of bugs. And bugs all the way down. Yeah, like the turtles, which is kind of ironic because that was always the icon for one of the version control systems I loved. Oh. Um, Tortoise SVN. God, I love that app. Anyway, um, then you go down the other road and it turns out to be even worse. So you so wish you, you could get back again to the first and make another one. bunch of bugs on your way back. <laughs> right. And then you try to remember how you'd gone the other fork and then you make some more mistakes. And you're a mess. Right. But if you're so this using doesn't stop control, you from making mistakes. This will just allow you to get back to the previous set of mistakes without adding in the new ones. Exactly. So you <laughs> have to them. Right? And also it's way easier, right? So you basically, you're at a decision point, And so you, you proactively 
make the choice that you're making a decision. So you snapshot the current reality and you give a name to the new path that you're about to head down called library number one or whatever, moment.js, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you just start writing your code and you get as far as you get and you stop. You don't delete anything. It's still called, you know, you're making your changes. You don't delete anything. You just roll back to the point you made the decision. You make a new, what we call a branch, but we'll get to that in future installments. You named native.js and you experiment down that route. And it doesn't work out. Well, okay, fine. Just jump back across the way you'd left off on the first route. No need to remember how to back out the changes. No need to remember how to reapply the changes. You just pick up where you left off. And if you're particularly procrastinating, you might change your mind again. And and there, yeah. So there's really sort of like three choices, right? You had you had the branch you took to the left, the branch you took to the right. You can go back to where you hadn't branched at all yet. Yeah. Like I guess I don't really want that feature after all because it's too hard. <laughs> or someone says, "Oh, didn't you think about option three? <laughs> okay. Okay. You nitwit. Your googling skills have gone soft. Here, here's actually what you want to do. So go. Okay. So it is. And then if you go down a different path, right? I mean. And the whole point is you make these decisions without any sort of overhead. Yes, the code you write is still code you write. So you're still, quote unquote, wasting time experimenting with your different routes. But that's what engineering is. And what would software engineering be any different? You're experimenting, you're testing, you're throwing things out. And this way, you're free to try out as many things as you want safely. And you're also free it's really liberating to know that if you mess everything up and you end the day with nothing compiling and you started the day with everything compiling, the worst thing that can happen is you roll back to where you were in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. In theory. <laughs> well, look, you have to do it right. And So I've been doing it without being taught and I've managed to make that not be a true statement because I think right. I don't understand the fundamentals. And so now I'm going to get the fundamentals, right? Yeah, which is obviously the right way to do things is have a go at it and then figure out how it works. That's how, well, no, that's the man way of doing things. Oh, well, I you don't know. You read the manual as a last resort, <laughs> not a first resort. I don't know that last men resort. get to call dibs on that one. I, I mean, I'm a big fa okay. fan of take it apart, see how it works, not be able to put it back together and then go, okay, fine, I'll go read it. So, What changed me on that is a very costly experiment in my teenage years when money was was different scaled. I saved up for ages to buy a zip drive. And there was some sort of really, really stupid engineering in it that if you plugged it into power while there was a zip drive in it, you would break your zip drive. Mm. And it was in giant red writing on the first page of the manual. <laughs> I broke mine before I ever opened that manual. Oh, bummer. I had to go buy another one. Anyway. Um, so the other thing I definitely wanted to stress is that version control is really powerful. And powerful things tend to be complex. So there's a lot of concepts to sort of get your head around. And the tools tend not to be prescriptive. They tend to be really flexible. So that has the advantage that whatever way your brain works, you should be able to use the tool. But it has a disadvantage that you basically have an infinite search space where everyone has a different strongly held opinion on the right thing to do. <laughs> and you you may come under a lot of pressure to do X or to do Y or to do Z. Don't feel pressure will be my approach. And also don't be afraid to start. Just have a go. And you'll probably say, oh, I wish I'd done X different or Y different. Fine. You'll start another software project soon enough. Do that one different. And the one after that, you know, internalize a few more lessons. 
And, you know, a few software projects later, you'll know your workflow and it will work for you. And that's fine. I have, I mean, you were, you didn't want to do it, right? But oh, I, have, I, I let me say this one because I know exactly where you're going because I was going to say it is I've experienced what Bart's talking about is I made uh, what I think Bart would call a dog's dinner or a dog's breakfast. I always forget which one's British and which one's Irish. I like breakfast. Okay. I made a dog's breakfast of my version control to a point where we were we were in a part of, of the the version control system we were using where even Bart was like, I'm not really sure what'll happen if you try that. But you know what I would do? I would just take where you are right now, because you like where it is right now, start over a new a whole new project. And it's okay that all that stuff's just gonna sit there and good luck to it. Yeah, and I've done that many times in my life. I've just got, nope, I have made a complete mess of this. Just start over. I'm going to take the current state of play, call it the original version, and carry on from there. And by the way, start over doesn't mean start over coding. It means you've got finally got your code in a good spot, but you've mucked up the version control of it. And and I didn't even get rid of my old version control because I think there's code in there I might still want to go back and look at. Ways that I did things. Right, right. I could keep it. You could keep it, but basically start a fresh history. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> Have a nice age. Destroy <laughs> everything. <laughs> Rewrite history. Yeah. So, you know, Mount Vesuvius or whatever, start again. Um, and I've done that many times. And I tell you, I don't think that's anything to be even vaguely afraid of or ashamed of. Just, just throw it out. You know, it's, if you feel that the, so the version control is hindering instead of helping, start over. Have another go. It's fine. All right. And the last thing I want to say before we get a little more into detail is we're going to focus on version control for software, but that's only one of its uses. You can use version control systems to manage any creative project. If it consists of files on a computer, you can version it with a version control system. It's most efficient versioning text, but it can version binary files as well. It's just a little inefficient in storage and can't show you a meaningful delta because, what, you're going to tell the difference between a bunch of ones and zeros and a different bunch of ones and zeros? <laughs> but you can save every copy of the Word doc and open every copy of the Word doc. It's just nowhere near as useful as a text file. But this this very podcast you're listening to, the the text of it is versioned in a version control system. The book that yourself and Helma spent so much time on for taming the terminal is versioned in a version control system. An awful lot of computer scientists version control their theses and their projects and so forth Mm. for university. You can version pretty much anything if it exists in a computer. And I I I strongly recommend you do. I had never thought about that. Yeah, if you're writing a thesis and you're working down a path and you realize, oh, man, this is, you know, I'd really like to take a different approach here. But what I've written, I might need to get back to. Let me just save this as a version and go over here and do this other thing. And, And then later on you go, oh, yeah, I need paragraph B from that. Let me go get that and put it back in here. So being able to go back and forth on that, and and it it was real interesting doing the book that way. So I would download the versions of the book or the chapters and do editing and push them back up, and then Helma would uh, would incorporate them. And so we were working on it as a project together. But we, I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but yeah, we used version control just to do that. So that's and if you're- the generic phrase is version control, but I hear source control sometimes. 
Yeah, computer scientists think the world revolves around them. So they use it to manage their source code. So they call it source control. Okay, but that's a synonym. Uh, I would say a subset. Subset. Okay. Okay. Right. You know, you can use version control for source control. Got you. Got you. Okay. But source control means controlling your source code. Yeah. Okay. Whereas version control is versioning anything. Okay. Um, and I had to correct myself about 50 million times while writing these show notes to say version control, version control, version control, because I was writing source control every second line. Well, I, I may the well have left a few in. Well, that's why I noticed the second chat, the second section says to where we're about to go, two totally different universes of source control. Oh, nuts. I'll change it to version control, which I can do because we're in a versioning system right now. Exactly. So I'm actually going to do what I what, what I found often works well is I'm going to give you a history of how we got to now because it's actually logical and sensible and makes the current approach make more sense. Okay. So there are two worldviews of how you version things. There is the client-server model, which has the advantage of being really intuitively simple to understand, uh, but it has a lot of drawbacks we'll talk about in a moment. And there's the peer-to-peer -peer version, which is very much in the ascendancy, but could also be described factually as anarchy. <laughs> because anarchy means no central control. And on a peer-to-peer -peer system, that's kind of the point. So the second one is, is client-server and one is peer-to-peer. -peer. Yeah. Okay. So client-server came first because it's how our human brains like to think about things. So with a client-server model, there exists a central server that is the arbiter of truth. It okay. contains the master copy. The authoritative source. The, yeah, the centrally controlled authoritative source. Okay. And when you want to work on this project, you check out a state. And the only thing that comes down to your computer is that snapshot that you've asked for. Mm -hmm. You then edit that snapshot. And then when you're done, you check it back into the server. Okay. So you check it out, you edit it, and you check it in. Uh, so your computer doesn't have the full history. Now, you can ask the server for any point in the history, but the server is the only place that knows everything. Uh, it has certain advantages. If you like central control because you're corporate IT, well, there is a very strong central control here. The server is the boss. Right. And the other thing is dealing with conflicts is supremely simple. First come, first served. If I check it out and I check it back in before you, if you've made a clashing change, I win because I was first. Whether you were right you, or not. Exactly. You then have to make your change compatible with mine before the server will accept yours because the server's like, nope, you're trying to commit this and that conflicts with what is now truth. So Fix that's it. very linear, which is very pleasing, linear. right? Yeah, it's simple. And for large institutions, it, you know, there's obvious advantages. It fits into a management structure quite well. But... An immediate problem for home users is I need to run a sodding server just to version my code. That's that's not use. That's not convenient for an open source project, which may be very informal at first. Someone then has to be the guy or the girl who looks after the server. Well, that person has just gained massive power within this supposed collaboration because they're now the ones who control the stuff. Now, they don't want to, but someone has to do it. If you're doing a collaboration between multiple universities, one of them suddenly gets all the power because they're hosting the version control. So that would be maybe like a librarian type person who enjoys the having the control and sorting and keeping, you know, making sure everybody's playing nice in the in the system. Or within a software project, often the person who feels the most like self-sacrifice is like, oh, fine. 
Well, that's what I was going to say. I was describing the ideal condition, right? Is is the the librarian personality who really enjoys and thrives and has that as an ingrained talent, but in and reality, the project, yeah. it, right? But in reality, it probably goes to the person who didn't dodge quick enough, or the person who happens to, to have a server handy. Oh, right. Okay. You know, pure access. Oh, yeah, there's room on that server. Yeah, there's enough disk space. Oh, fine, I'll host it. You know? <laughs> and then also um, you're responsible. Yeah. And the other very obvious thing is client server is highly dependent on connectivity to the server. Okay. So if you're working in a cubicle farm in corporate IT world or even or in, in academia, well, it's fine because you're sitting in a lab. The server's two doors over. No problem. Mm -hmm. But that's not really our world. I mean, before 2020, I would have talked a lot about airplanes and, you know, how <laughs> you could get lots and lots of useful work done while flying across the Atlantic from LAX to Dublin or vice versa, which I may have done as a nonstop 12 hour flight. <laughs> With a server client server model, you do not have the ability to make a decision that you can revert from. Right. Everything you do is one commit back to the server. OK, you've been no contact with the server in between. Right, right. And in 12 hours, I can make a lot of mistakes and I can change my mind quite a few times. <laughs> and uh, Sally and Bill and Bob were were connected and they submitted their stuff. And now you're you're in a mess. Yeah. So I arrived back with 12 hours worth of work, none of which I have any sort of ability to roll back inside of because it's one giant big atomic commit. And of course, as soon as I hit commit, it's going to go, you know, clash, 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 resolve these all of these problems before we'll accept your commit. So it really doesn't work in that world. And in the world of working from home, it doesn't work any better, really. Because, you know, we, we all have outages or, frankly, we want to go away for a while. And, you know, we rent a log cabin up a mountain somewhere. And once a week we come down for some groceries and some proper coffee and a sip of Internet. <laughs> and again, you need the ability to version all the time, whether or not you have a network connection. Okay, so you can't uh, you can't do even local kind of versioning, right? Not with the, not with the the client server models because okay. the local one doesn't have any sense of history. Oh, the local one right, has what right. I am working on, and you get to upload and download it, but that's all you have. You don't have a history; you just have a snapshot that you're working on. Okay, okay, got you. So this is definitely where this stuff started. Um, the first one to in the open source, I'm going to concentrate on open source in this discussion. There are there are more proprietary version control systems you can take a stick at. But in the open source world, the first one to really get its skates on to get a bit of take up was the client server one called the Concurrent Versioning System or CVS, which hmm. started life in 1990. Oh, wow. And I had the misfortune of having to use C CVS. Oh, there's another typo, CSV. So no idea how often I tried not to type CSV. Okay, so it's CVS. Got it. It's CVS, Concurrent Versioning System. I just made a and version was, control change. You did indeed. <laughs> uh, and what actually, C CVS had many flaws, but its biggest flaw was that it didn't version folders, it versioned files. So you couldn't rename anything ever. Oh. <laughs> so when you're a little bit picky about names like I am, you couldn't change your mind mm. because that would be a whole new file and the old one would continue to exist next to the new one. SVN would just be like, or sorry, C CVS would just be like, no, 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 there's two files here now. Oh, so stupid. Um, and in languages like Java, where the name of the file and the name of the class have to be the same, you can't rename your classes because then oh. CVS, it's all cranky at you. So, oh, 
Horrible, horrible system. Okay. I was so happy to be allowed to change to the pinnacle of this model. So the pinnacle of client server was something called Subversion, which was abbreviated to SVN. It's not an, an, an acronym. It's just a shortening of Subversion, SVN. And since CVS had three letters, Subversion felt it should have three letters. So, and its terminal command was SVN. This is uh, this is fun for me. Um, I was in a software engineering organization where I wasn't doing software engineering. I was doing computer-aided design support of hardware and software. and uh, But they were always yapping about this thing called Subversion. And, and they wanted me to care. And I was just like, I don't care. I don't want anything to yeah. do with this. <laughs> well, the, the pinnacle for me of subversion, this was back, at this, I'll tell you how long ago this was. I was a Windows user and I was happy. <laughs> it was probably NT4. You just didn't know any Windows better. <laughs> yeah. But there was a wonderful app called Tortoise SVN. And it was an integration to the Windows, um, it's not the Finder, what the hell does Windows call it? Explorer. Explorer. The File Explorer app, where you could do your version control with little icons over all of your files. And they'd show a little green arrow if they were in sync with the server, and you oh. could see your changes, well, and you could nifty. push a button to commit them. That's nifty. It is nifty. Tortoise SVN was really nice. And it was so nice. I actually stayed using SVN while all the rest of the software, in the, or, you know, the open source community had gone bounding off into the peer-to-peer world. I was like, nope, I like I like, I like SVN. Um, I still have some of my software on an SVN repo sitting on one of my virtual hosts sitting in DigitalOcean <laughs> because I haven't got around to moving all of them over to a more modern system just yet. So I still actually, when I run my weekly backup script, one of the action items in the script is still to clone my subversion repositories mm. on the server. <laughs> and there's, they might be useful someday. So I, I really stuck with subversion for a very long time. It's a sensible system. It took everything that was wrong with, with uh, CVS and fixed it. But the world moved on to the peer-to-peer -peer world, which is usually shortened to distributed. Okay. So it is a peer-to-peer -peer system, but you'll usually heard it described as distributed version control. So with a distributed version control, you don't get a snapshot. Every copy contains the entire history. So when you use our modern, because we're using a peer-to-peer -peer based system, we won't go into the details just yet, but we're using a peer-to-peer -peer based system. So you have on your Mac the entire history of programming by styles. You don't just have a snapshot of what it was like today. You have it all. You, without any internet connection, although our Skype call would suffer a bit, <laughs> you could go back to any point in time. You have the full history on your device. And that's one of the fundamental differences is that with a peer-to-peer -peer system, everyone has everything, which means at a technological level, they're all exactly equal. And it's anarchy. Exactly. <laughs> Any notion of order is a purely human policy on top of the technology. At a technological level, there is no difference. Your copy is totally complete. So my copy my is copy. truth. Exactly. <laughs> huh. Exactly. I can prove it, by no. the way. The initial commit I can see is October... Oh, wait a minute. Just jump to the top. Uh, hang on. October 25th, 2019. It says initial commit. Yeah, very imaginatively named that one. <laughs> um, 
It, by the so, way, I've, I mentioned this to Dorothy when you were first starting to teach me a little bit about it, and she comes from a, 30 years as a professional programmer, and she was like, nope, 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 that, that doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't buy it. So this would be <laughs> interesting to hear what she thinks about this, because it, it's been a few years since we talked about it. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So there's no, the, you can still have control and order. But it's something you as an organization decide. It's not technically enforced. So the copy that is sitting at pbs.bardifacer.net is only the canonical one because it has a nice domain name that we've all agreed is the real one. Right? <laughs> okay, so like you're saying, policy not technically true. Correct. Huh. Does there have to be no. a canonical? There doesn't. Okay. So if you're in a very informal project where you're just a bunch of people noodling an idea, but maybe none of them are considered the full one. Hmm. Everyone is just shoving commits at each other. And everyone's copy is slightly different from everyone else's copy. Whenever you have a good idea, you publish it with your mates and otherwise you don't. Hmm. And so it can be uh, like there is a spectrum between absolute anarchy and very tight control, but it's it's purely policies you decide to put on top of this model. Interesting. Okay. And the fact that everyone has the full history is what gives it its power. Because when I go on an airplane or whatever, I can continue to make branches and tags and all those things we're going to learn about because I have a full history. So I have all of the power of version control without any network connectivity whatsoever. I can't share with others until I regain my network connectivity, but I can continue to work. And that's really important. Okay. Um, so for very obvious reasons, the first people to, to really push this model was the open source community because they, the, they didn't like the central control. Probably the last place to embrace this model was corporate IT because they really liked the central control. But it's the fact that while you're traveling, you can continue to work has won out. And everyone has realized that actually with policies on top of it, you can still have central control, right? Right. A, a server hosting what is considered the canonical copy, some VPNs to protect the connections to that private central copy, and you can have corporately owned laptops safely working anywhere in the world with a supposedly peer-to-peer -peer system, but it's still completely locked down because you're protecting it with other pieces of IT infrastructure. So you get to have it both ways with a distributed system. You can have people working efficiently and you apply the central control through policies. So actually everyone wins. Right, right. So that's why we live in a world now where almost all version control in actual daily use is distributed. And really, it was the mid-2000s when that really took off. For some reason, 2005 was a big year for distributed version control. So... At the time, a bit like the Betamax versus VHS, no one quite knew who was going to take off. But three big open source projects all kicked off in 2005. You had GNU Bazaar, which went nowhere. Hmm. You had Mercurial, which was perhaps the Betamax of, this, of the whole equation. It really looked like it was going somewhere for a while. And then out of the blue, Linus Torvalds, the guy who may have written a small thing called Linux, uh, he decided he wanted a, a versioning system and he was a very picky sod so he just made one up he was like none of these are good enough I'm brilliant I'll make my own and within 
literally days, he did. And it's called Git. Does Git stand for anything? No, it doesn't stand for anything. And there are four official definitions at least. Uh, And basically he says, whatever mood you're in, you should pick the appropriate one. I'm going to list them all in next week's show notes because they're fantastic. But one of his jokes is, so in, in the UK and in Ireland, a git is sort of a snotty person. And so he said, I called Linux after myself and the same is true of git. <laughs> so Which his I own quite. snarkiness fits in. Okay. Yeah. So git completely took off. Um, so git is now the absolute winner here, really. But to say it hit the ground running is an understatement. So Linus Torvalds basically said, April 3rd, he started. He made it public on April 6th. Wow. And the project became self-hosted on April 7th. In other words, Git was used to version control Git (laughs) days after Git went from an empty page. Wow. So it's been self-hosting itself since April 7th, 2005. And the first line of code was written April 3rd. When he passes away, we need to open up his brain and see what's in there. (laughs) Yeah, well, someone actually dissected Einstein's brain and he had actually slightly unusual proportions of things. Really? Yeah, I think Linus Trofos may be in that category too. Yeah. So having had such a quick start, by June, it was managing the Linux kernel. So version 2.6.12 of the Linux kernel was the first one managed through Git. That was released on June 6th. And by July... He'd gotten bored and handed it over to a chap called uh, Junio Hamano, who has been shepherding the project ever since. Interesting. So because Git basically proved itself to be capable because it is managing probably the biggest open source project there is, the Linux kernel, it took off because no one could say, oh, this thing, I don't think it's powerful enough. Yeah. I don't think it's good enough for my project. Mm-hmm. No, no, it's versioning the Linux kernel with hundreds of contributors, and it's doing it really well. Huh. So, yeah. It makes me wonder it. if they did declare a canonical version, like if they said this one over here is the real one. But I guess we're going to get into the details of how it's managed and who can push and pull and well, that yeah, sort of thing. Well, yeah, because again, so. that is, right, so in the case of Git, the, the the official version is the one managed by Junio. But anyone who's a developer on a Git-hosted open source project can take their copy and start a new open source project from there. Right. Fine. Right. But you can have a project like the Linux kernel where someone gets to decide whether or not your changes go in. So instead of it Correct. being first in, first out, you know, like what you described before, somebody can still be the the uh the owner of it and say i get to decide or we are the panel who gets to decide exactly because you have a full version where you've made a change and i manage the official version at linux.org which Mm -hmm. has a full version well you need to submit to me your changes right and i run my version so i can say no or yes please right 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 and so a software maintainer's job is basically yes no nearly Tell you what, make these tweaks so it applies by our coding standards and try again. Yeah. Which so may be said in various that, levels of niceness. That might be the the part that changes it from um well, by by definition it is anarchy, but it, the the terrifying feeling that Dorothy had that there was no authoritative source, there sort of is. It's just not technical. It's not technically it's, it's the organization managerial. does it. Yeah. 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 It's management. Okay. Not 
but the Security technology control. underneath it allows it to not have to have a or not have a canonical source. Exactly. So the okay. technology underneath is completely unopinionated about how you should manage your software. It's just a tool and mm -hmm. you decide how to use that tool to manage your software, which okay. is extremely powerful, which is why it's at home in corporate IT, in the university sector and in the open source community. Yeah, that it's the same sense. tool, but it's used very differently in all those places. Okay. So the next thing I want to do for today's very much theoretical installment is to describe to you the journey we're going to take together. So like we use JavaScript to learn concepts of programming, we're going to use Git to learn concepts of distributed version control. We're not going to waste our time with the client-server model. We're going distributed from day one, and the tool we're going to use is Git. And I'm going to assume that you and everyone else listening has never done any version control before. So we're okay. going to go from zero. And where we'd like to end up is to a point in time where anyone listening can contribute to an open source project. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's where we want to get to. And then specifics, I'd quite like you all to be able to submit typos to this open source project when I inevitably make them. So rather than Bart, sending me an email going, hey, Bart, you dummy, you misspelled this thing 500 times over here in installment 42, you can just send it to me through Git and I can accept it. And then A, I don't have to do the work. And B, our Git project will show you as a contributor, which ah, is nice to be able to actually credit you. You know, you did this. Here it is. I can prove Bart believes in that, too. Um, I did something that turned out to be a mistake or broke something else. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't a terrible thing, but I did something that was kind of dopey. And instead of rejecting it or, or removing my contribution, he just changed it back in another commit so that I would still show as having contributed to the project. And I, and I thought and that it's was still in our tree now as a little loop that goes whoop dip. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice because it it made me realize that that was an important thing. It's 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 street cred, right? Absolutely, it is. And if you're if you're in the software industry, um, your commit profile on a place called GitHub, we'll talk about in a moment, is really seen as a badge of honor. Mm. So a lot of programming jobs having a high reputation on Stack Overflow and having an active profile on GitHub are seen as very good signs. So, so you're like the kind of you're person you're an actual hire. developer. Exactly. You okay. do this for real. Okay. So that's where we want to end up, but we're going to do it in phases. So we're going to start because there's so much here, right? There are so many concepts here. We need to narrow our focus or we're going to get lost. So we're going to start with a single local repository. We don't need a server because every copy has everything. So we're just going to have a copy on our computer. It happens to be a very special folder, or rather, a folder containing a special folder called .git. And we can do all of our magic on that folder. So we're going to learn how to actually do source control. And we're going to do most of our learning initially, if I'm going to do it all, initially using the git command line tools. Oh, good. And then... Because I haven't to, learned any of that. Right. And there's a really tight mapping between the GUIs and the command line tools because the open source tend to put a very thin veneer over the terminal commands when they make a GUI. Very it, thin veneer. 
One of the reasons I've gotten sort of the hang of a lot of this, but one of the reasons I really want to learn the command line tools is 95% of the answers to questions I pose on the internet are in the command line. And I go, whoop, I don't know anything about that. I got to back out. So I've not been able to get answers to my questions because I don't understand the basics. So that that's I'm looking forward to the command line part. Excellent. We're also going to mention the GUIs because, like I said, they're all thin veneers. And when you know what the terminal commands do, all the GUIs make sense. Okay. It doesn't really matter who, which GUI you get because they all use the same words and they all use the same verbs. And the reason is because they map to the terminal commands. Okay. So cool. I have a favorite and the screenshots will probably be from that favorite, but you have a different favorite. And I may ask you to do screenshots too from time to time to give okay. people a flavor of how they're similar but different. Of a different and GUI he's talking about. Yeah. Okay. And they achieve the same things and they generally use very, very, very similar wordings and very, very similar ways of describing things. But the GUIs can be quite different looking in some ways. And developers tend to be opinionated people. So people tend to be excruciatingly picky about their version control software. <laughs> and I, Bart I, made the mistake of leaving me alone with Helma for a while. And uh, yeah, so, so now you went off and you have a different favorite to me. <laughs> And both of you actually have a different favorite to me. Right. I'm, I'm sticking with my favorite. That's okay. Um, a lot of the screenshots are going to be with my favorite for a really, really simple reason. Um, it's Linux, Windows, and Mac. Ah, so okay. So everyone gets to play. Which is important to say that the command line tools are also Linux, Windows, and Mac. So everyone gets to play, which is also very important. Once we're comfortable with the basics on just a local repository, the next step is to move to a server, but just for ourselves. So the first reason you might want a server is as a backup. So you're working away locally, but the, you have a full version history, but it's all here in this one folder. What if something happens in that one folder and you've lost it all? So having your own server to synchronize to is a good way of protecting yourself from accidentally deleting the folder or having something horrible happen to your computer. And the second advantage to having a server is that if you have multiple computers, like many of us listening do, it's much easier to work on the same code in multiple different computers if there's a central server that sort of you can check out from in both computers or all three computers or all five computers. So you don't need to share with other people to get value from a server. And that will give us the chance to look at how the whole server interaction works in a nice and simple way. And then the final step is we bring other people into the equation. Hmm. And that's the point where we need, yeah, well, a lot of terminology comes into play there and that, that's quite a big step. But that's also the final step you need to contribute to an open source project because that is a Git version control system, you know, a repository managed by someone who's not you that's published to the world. So you clone it, make your changes and offer them back. And that's how open source works. Right, right. And that's where we want to end up. So the final question for today is which Git server? So phase one has no server, but phases two and three are all about servers. So are we going to have to run a server in our house to play? No, no, we're not. You can. Um, out of the box, Git is happy to talk over SSH or HTTP. So if you are the kind of person who has a Linux VM sitting in the cloud somewhere, making it into a Git server is supremely trivial. You just yum install Git or, or apt-get Git or whatever your package manager is in your preferred version of Linux, 
And assuming you have SSH installed, which on every cloud-hosted VM you do, you're finished. That's it. You now have a server that can do Git for you because... So it does um, have to be a Linux server. No, it just has to use SSH or HTTPS. So you could have a Windows server and publish it out over HTTP if you like. Could you have a Mac server? You could. could you have a little, a oh, Mac a Mac server will do either, right? SSH, no problem. So yeah. you could have a Mac Mini in your house and have that be the server? Absolutely, you could. And Interesting. Pretty much out of the box. You just need the Xcode tools and you're done. Okay. Because the Xcode tools will give you Git. Um, and SSH you get for free on the Mac. So that's it. I mean, it, it is amazing that it's pretty much ready to go out of the box. You install Git, you're pretty much good to go as a Git server. Um, but not all of our listeners are the kind of people who have servers lying about in their closet, Mac Mini shaped or otherwise. And the point of this series isn't to make us all into Linux sysadmins as much as I'd love to do that. We're <laughs> that here I just thought program. up what our next, uh, our next uh, podcast Taming will the be. Terminal, <laughs> Taming the Terminal kind of is the baby steps of that. <laughs> um, so we're going to use Git as a service. And because there's a lot, you know, it's, it's an open source system. So anyone can host a Git server and make it available to the public to use. And so there's low, or there used to be an awful lot of different Git as a service, but a lot of them have sort of consolidate, consolidated into two big players really left standing. Um, the granddaddy of them all is probably GitHub, um, which is a Git as a service. And the other very strong competitor is GitLab. So, so uh, just for information, um... Ed, a good friend of the show and good friend of mine, um, has Ed Tobias use is using Bitbucket. Is that also Git? Uh, no, Bitbucket is it is also a Bitbucket. If I'm remembering correctly, Bitbucket is a proprietary distributed source control system. Hmm. So feature wise, it's the same philosophy as Git, but it's okay. a proprietary product. That one's from Atlassian. Yes. Okay. Yes, and Atlassian are big leaders in the proprietary market. Okay. They give a lot yeah. of stuff away for free. Free me, yeah. I yeah. mean, and they're doing more of that because they're kind of being forced to by GitHub and GitLab. Okay. okay. Um, Atlassian That's used, to, used to get very, very little for free from Atlassian, but you get more and more these days. Okay. It's an interesting trend. But no, Atlassian are really big players in the proprietary version control space. And the model they're using is the same model we have with Git. It's a distributed model. So you get a full copy when you check out from Bitbucket. So I just started looking at their tutorials and uh, they were, it was command line stuff and it had the word Git in it. Okay, well maybe they've switched, maybe they don't have their own backend anymore. Maybe they are a commercial offering of Git then. Great. Yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know that for a fact. Don't, don't make me swear to it. The, the commercial world is an interesting place because you have a mixture of totally proprietary or extensions of open source systems where the extensions are proprietary, but they have an open source base, or they implement the Git protocol, but actually have their own backend. So you're talking Git language, but it's not actually Git. Yeah, I think maybe it is that middle one where it's a combination where the basis is Git, but then proprietary stuff, because they, I do remember seeing that they use uh, their their own proprietary system, Jira, for opening issues, which Git well, already has sort of built in, or no, Git, GitHub no, has no, built in. 
Aha, yes, indeed. So GitHub is Git as a service. And one of the big things GitHub has is it's a lot more than just Git. Okay. And that's also where Atlassian come into play. They're a lot more than just source control. Atlassian are offering you the full suite, right? I want to make software. What do I need? I need an issue tracker. I need version control. Okay. Like they're a real soup to know. Okay, so the issue tracker is separate on all of these. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, here, uh, Bitbucket is more than just Git code management. Bitbucket gives teams one place to plan projects, collaborate on code, test, and deploy. Get it free. So it is Git now. Okay, good. Okay. I like when more of the world does that. That's kind of the power of open source. <laughs> it overpowers. Uh, okay, but we're yeah. going to be looking at GitHub and GitLab. I had not heard well, of GitLab. Well, for now, they're the two I'm still talking about. We'll okay. Focus on a little more. So GitHub started life as a web-based Git solution. So you create a repository on their server, and if you want, you can access it over SSH or HTTPS as if you're running your own server. But GitHub's magic sauce was to take it a step further by adding a web interface to Git. So GitHub is to Git what Gmail is to email. It's both a server and a powerful web-based client. Okay. So it's basically the webmail of Git. Is what okay. GitHub is. That's how All it started right. life. Um, so GitHub was originally independent, but it's actually now been bought by Microsoft. Dun, dun, and dun. No, GitHub have always had a very generous free hosting option for public and private repositories, and you have an option to upgrade to paid tiers for more advanced features. And so GitHub has always been commercial, hmm. uh, but they've also had a long history of supporting open source. So their business model used to be really simplistic. If your stuff is public and open source, it's free. And if you want it proprietary, you pay us to host it. Oh. Now, over time, they became a bit more freemium in the sense that you got to have a little bit of private, but only a little bit for free. And then if you wanted lots of private, you had to pay money. And then over the years, they started adding more and more advanced features like continuous deployment and all these kind of things. Um, and so now you have a full suite between you can have for free private repositories. But if you pay, you can get like really powerful things. Okay. Uh, but the business model has always been freemium. It has never been based on selling ads or data. So it has never been the freepy model. It's always been freemium. So when you follow the money, you never went to a bad place. And Microsoft have actually changed the equation and perhaps not in the way people would have expected. Because certainly Microsoft of a decade ago, you would have expected to turn it into a money machine and to wring every drop of profit out of it they could possibly manage. And make it only work on Windows or something like that. Well, if Steve Ballmer was around, you can absolutely rest assured it would be renamed Windows Version Control and would only work on Windows servers, yes. Right. Because that was Steve Ballmer's approach to life. It all had to be Windows. But Microsoft have taken an extremely different tack. Microsoft see supporting open source as really important to their cloud business. And their cloud business is now their biggest business by far. So their approach to GitHub has been to make it part of the infrastructure. And as long as it doesn't cost them money, they're happy. So when they took it over, they made the free tier have more features hmm. and reduced the price of the paid tiers. Basically, what was GitHub's profit, Microsoft had just given back to the community as more features. Wow. Yeah, my bill is halved. Um, and I have more features. Huh. That doesn't usually happen. So I, I say I'm, I'm really happy with my I mean, is it fattening? What, there's there's got to be a trick here, right? 
Well, no, the trick is it's no longer seen as a product end, as a profit center. It's seen as a, as a part of the infrastructure. So the profit has just been given back. Hmm. So the margin has just been taken to zero. So That's now you bananas. can offer more for free. I've never heard of such a thing. <laughs> okay. It's great. I love the new Microsoft. Satya Nadella is my hero. Well, okay, that's a bit strong, but I like him. Um, so GitLab, on the other hand, has a different history. Very interesting history, though. So GitLab started as a free and open software package that you would run on your own servers with sort of the unofficial tagline, your own private GitHub. So basically, they were an open source implementation of GitHub. Hmm. They were provided you with a web client for Git that you could install yourself on your own server. Um, and that model was really appealing to corporate land. Because running your own server that's on your private in you know your private Infra corporate Infra network, right. your intranet as we used to call them, is extremely appealing in the corporate world. And being able to have all the bells and whistles of GitHub without having it out in the cloud is also extremely appealing to corporate world. So they very quickly developed a hosting model to go along with their open source product. So you could say they were the WordPress of Git. Yes, it's a free and open source product you can run on your own server, but if you go to WordPress.com, they'll just sell you WordPress hosting. Well, GitLab soon went from being only an open source project to being an open source project or a place you could buy GitLab hosting. And it soon became clear that this whole corporate world was a really big deal. So they actually took it a step further and split the product in two. Hmm. So the entirely open source version continues to exist as GitLab Community Edition or GitLab CE. And you can download GitLab CE and install it on your favorite Linux server or as a Docker container or whatever you're having yourself. And you can have an entirely private web interface that's every bit as powerful as GitHub running on your own server. It's really cool. Um, yeah. We do it in work. It's fantastic. And it's private, completely firewalled off on the world, sitting on private IP addresses. It's great. And then there's GitLab EE, which is Enterprise Edition. And it's basically an enhanced version of the Community Edition, but the enhancements are closed source. So that's oh. the open core model. Okay, so they sort of went the other way. They sort of went the other way, exactly. Okay. And the key point, though, is that just like with GitHub, they have never sold data to make a profit. They have always been a freemium model. We get a little bit for free, and if you want more, you pay us. But their business model is nice and transparent, and it's not creepy. So mm -hmm. again, two very good options here. And I won't judge anyone for picking one or the other. But I've decided that because of their long history of offerful, offering powerful free services to open source projects, and because I have a lot of faith in Microsoft's choices, I am going to use GitHub for the examples in this series. Okay. But you don't have to. Okay. You can use your own server. You can use GitLab. You can use whatever you like, but you're going to have to tweak the examples slightly if you're not using GitHub. But so, the concept would be the same. So to say you're using GitHub means you're using the service at github.com. So it's not, you're, you can't host GitHub locally. Correct. Or like on GitHub. one of your own servers. Correct. Whereas GitLab, you can. But GitLab, you can. Okay. Like WordPress. So GitLab is like WordPress and GitHub is like, uh, blah, 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 what, what would be an online service? It's like Atlassian, frankly. You can't download your own Atlassian. Right. Okay. By the way, while you've been talking, I just installed uh, GitLab on a, in a Docker container on my Synology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 I was slow to realize the power of Docker, but the fact that you can just deploy a server to your NAS, thanks to the power of Docker, 
and most meeting? importantly, click it and go, okay, I, I don't want that. It's, be gone. Yeah, go away. Yeah, yeah. go away. Shoot. That was a bad idea. Yeah. It's it's great for stuff like um, uh, running your own. Oh, what's that video service we both love to use? Ah, oh, I, don't, I don't remember. A video oh, service. Oh, we both that... have them running and our family oh, can Plex. get our videos. And stuff. Plex. Plex, exactly. Yeah. Plex in a Docker container is just perfect on your NAS box. Actually, yeah, I don't. I think Plex actually installs directly on Synology, but you okay, could. Okay, yes, yeah. 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 So anyway, that's where we're going. So my aim here today was just to describe the proverbial forest before we start looking at specific trees in that forest. So we know that version control comes in these two distinct flavors, client-server and peer-to-peer, and we're going the client-server model, which is usually called distributed. There's Wait, no, lots no, no, of no, no, client server is not distributed. Peer to peer. No, you're right. I said that wrong. We're going yeah. peer to peer, which is called distributed. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> There's lots of distributed version control systems to choose from, both open source and proprietary. We're going the gate route because it's open source and it really has won the hearts and mind of the open source community. Having chosen Git, our next choice is well, where do we use for you know? So we're going to use the Git commands. We're going to use lots of different GUIs. Uh, the one I happen to use is a freemium GUI, right? Git Kraken is not open source, but it is free for basic use. And if you want the shiny features, you pay a license. So Git Kraken, by the way, is as in release the Kraken. Is how it's exactly. Spelled. And its icon is this amazing squiddy thing. <laughs> Very cool. Which is animated when the app loads, because, well, of course it is. Why wouldn't you animate something with eight legs um, and have them spin around? So... I'm going to be using Git Kraken for my screenshots and stuff, but use whatever you like. They all do the same thing because ultimately they're just thin, thin veneers on top of the command line. And, and an important point of that is, so when I'm talking to Helma, I always use uh, the the view from uh, the Atlassian tool that, that we're using called Sourcetree. And when I'm talking to Bart, I use Git Kraken and I use the words and screenshots from Git Kraken. So, but it doesn't matter because they're both seeing the entire code tree and all of the history because it's all looking at the same thing and it is that veneer on top of the command line. Yeah, so you can, because ultimately you can, it's a folder go back with a special file called .git. Ultimately, every Git repository is a folder with a folder inside it called .git and there's all sorts of magic in the .git folder and every GUI is just reading that .git folder and showing you reality. So that's a part I don't know yet because I haven't not. done the command line part. Correct. That is well. That is where we are off to next time. Uh, so, ooh, I, f- I shouldn't have scrolled my show notes by mistake. That was a bad idea. So, the last decision we've made today then is that when it comes to the server part of our story, I'm going to use GitHub and the examples, but you're free to use wherever you like. And the examples we need very minor tweaking. Okay. But most importantly, the aim of these next few installments is to teach you how to manage your source code so you can change your mind repeatedly without losing any code and you and so that you can easily share your code between your own computers and later with other people so that you can check out their code make some changes and contribute it back or get other people to help you with your code yeah that's what i'm hoping (laughs) no i mean each of us can have people get help with their code yeah, so, but I'm very selfishly, this is all open source and I make mistakes <laughs> all the time. So uh, help. 
<laughs> so um, let me ask you in terms of how big you picture this segment being, because um, I'm super excited about learning this and I'm, I'm sure everybody else is, but we also were going, yeah, but we were going to start PHP. So do you picture this being 10 installments, three installments, five? Do you have any kind of a feel for how big it is? Definitely more than three. Okay. Definitely more than three. I think it might be realistic to say PHP is a project for 2021. Oh, really? Okay. It's not that much time left for Christmas. Right, right. But we We're have only to... here every two weeks. Right. But in order to really exercise these uh, our chops in Git, we will have to have something to be working on. Right? That's also a good point. We'll yeah. need projects to be doing at the same time. And if uh, we don't have anything, if there's no homework mm. to design, something to noodle. I think that is something to noodle because I don't want to give two new concepts at the same time. So right. maybe what we need to do is make our world clocks better. <laughs> maybe. I have a noodle about that one because like, uh, teaching PHP would be very taxing on the brain. Right. And teaching Git, I promise you, will be taxing on the brain. Okay. Okay. But maybe uh, maybe the community could help us noodle, and I, I certainly would, on, on what would be something fun for us to build together with our existing, uh, our existing knowledge. Our, yeah, our existing skill set, something to skill build set. away we learn. So that's a very good idea. Community, chime in. Slack. <laughs> Podfeet.com forward slash Slack. That's, right. that's where we are. There we go. Uh, all right. Well, this was this was fun. This is definitely one of those teaser episodes. Like I always, when we first started, I compared it to when I learned to ride a pony when I was a little girl. And the first lesson was sitting in the barn on the pony. Actually, it wasn't ponies. They were horses. And uh, sitting on the horse, learning to post, which is where you basically squeeze your legs together, push yourself up in the air, and then go back down. And that's all we did the first lesson. And it was so frustrating because I was like, but I want to go. Let's run. I want to go run really yeah, fast on the, the wind of my hair. I want to gallop today. And we were posting inside the barn. So this was our oh. posting in the barn. We'll we'll uh, dip our toe outside the, uh, outside the barn door to, next time. Next time we are going into that command line that you've never been to before. Okay. So that, that'll be fun. This is more a case of saying, look, there is a barn. It contains horses. They're fun, I promise. That's kind of all we've done today. <laughs> Let's go find the horses. All right. Well, this will be good. I enjoyed this. Uh, I like the background, too. So I think I know where we're going. Excellent. Well, as I say, you're on the edge of your seat. But anyway, until next time, happy computing. If you learn as much from BART each week as I do, I'd like you to go over to lets-talk.ie and press one of the buttons over there to help support him. He does 98% of the work here. I'm just the stooge that listens to him and asks the dumb questions. If you go over to lets-talk.ie, you can support him on Patreon, you can donate via PayPal, or you can use one of his referral links. I really hope you'll go over and help him out. In the meantime, you can contact me at Podfeet or check out all of the shows we do over there over at podfeet.com. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.